but you will have some kind of balancing act. You cannot just be about, I know how to hack Kubernetes, but you also can't be, I've studied FAIR and the risk assessment methodologies. To be, to me, you, you will have to live in both worlds. You live in the tech world and you live in the risk world. From Cobalt at Home, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My guest today is Dr. Anton Chuvakin. He is a member of the Office of the CISO at Google Cloud. As a recognized security expert in the field of SIEM, log management, and PCI DSS compliance, he has held some very impressive positions, including Director of PCI Compliance Solutions at Qualys and Research Vice President and Distinguished Analyst at Gartner. At Gartner, Anton covered a broad range of security operations and detection and response topics and is credited with inventing the term EDR. In addition, Anton taught classes, including his own SANS SEC 434 class on log management, has presented at many security conferences around the world, has authored several books, and is overall just an awesome human being that I truly admire. Anton, thank you so much for joining me today. Perfect. Thank you for inviting me. This is fun. Yes. Anton, to say that your resume is impressive would be a severe understatement. But before we get into that specifically, I want to know, how did it all start? What is it that got you into the world of technology and security? So, you know what? The funny thing is before this uh, podcast, I was actually looking for how I answered this question in the past because I assumed somebody asked me that question in the past. And I know what I would say, but it's interesting that there's no canonical story about how it all started. But I was a physics grad student at the time and I was, you know, quietly studying physics. And in parallel, I kind of started getting interested in, well, Linux and, you know, IT, computers. But just as I was getting interested in that, because my physics involved a lot of computation, some of the computers got hacked by somebody. And sort of my, almost my first exposure to information security back in the 1990s was around investigating a compromised machine. So it's interesting how this whole IR forensics angle was my starting point. It wasn't anything else. And then it was, uh, I started to become even more interested in the computers and less in physics. And over time, I realized I don't really want to be a physicist. I want to graduate and then perhaps try my luck in the, well, it wasn't the cybersecurity, in the information security realm. And the rest is history. Incredible. You heard it here, folks. The canonical story of Anton Chuvakin. Anton, I have a follow-up question for you. Mm -hmm. Why do you prefer computer science to physics? Ooh, well, uh, I'm going to hide behind the Dan Gear quote. Uh, well, some of you may think that quantum physics is really like a brainy area of human endeavor. Uh, I, I'm going to misquote Dan Gear slightly where he said that uh, information security or cybersecurity, I don't recall how he said it, was probably the most intellectually challenged profession on the planet. And I feel like physics was too easy for me. Okay, I'm joking. It wasn't too easy. It's just the whole, you know, blue team, red team, or the good guy, bad guy, investigating, figuring out the traces. It just became more exciting to me than, than physics. Uh, it's not the intellectual challenge. It was just the excitement of dealing with the threat, you know, investigating, countering, mitigating. Like somehow that excited me a lot more than, well, using computers for what computers are used for. That is so cool. I agree that in cybersecurity, we have some very, very challenging problems to solve. At the end of the day, 
and perhaps this is my oversimplification of the way that I see physics, but at the end of the day, cybersecurity is certainly not just about math. Actually, the involvement of all these pesky humans uh, mm -hmm. creates some very interesting challenges. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Anton, if someone had told you in the first couple years of your career that you would be the research vice president and distinguished analyst at Gartner, how would you have reacted? Well, here's the thing. A good number of years before I joined Gartner as an analyst, somebody told me that I'm kind of already an analyst. I just don't know it yet. So uh, perhaps at the very beginning, I would be surprised. But throughout the later years, I almost felt like I'm doing the analyst job without being at the analyst firm. I did a fair bit of competitive analysis. I was always involved with use cases, with how people use technologies, you know, how people procure technologies. How do they decide build or buy? How to tell good technology from bad? So in that sense, uh, I don't recall who that was who told me that, uh, Anton, you should really go apply at an analyst firm because you're kind of already doing all that stuff. And when I joined Gartner in 2011, I kind of realized that that person was right. And I was kind of a natural analyst. And yes, you can probably say, was it your physics education that prepared you for this? And I have no idea. I think that physics education did prepare me to, the, to applying analytical approach to things, whether it's the pesky humans or computers. So maybe that did the trick. But ultimately, I, I would have surprised at the very beginning, but probably not later on. Very cool. I think that I've only known you since you've already had that type of role. And what I know about you is, of course, a very good fit for that type of work. Anton, we have folks listening to the podcast at all different stages of their security careers. Do you have any advice for folks that are up and coming and maybe for folks that are just getting started? Okay, so I'm going to give, I'm pretty sure everybody who is like a quote unquote seasoned in security wants to give advice to newcomers. But I was reading one of my favorite security mailing lists, Daily Dave, that goes way back many, many, many years to the, to the first, to the age of security mailing lists. And just a few days ago, there was a discussion about how some of the people have attended 30 DEFCONs or something. The point is that some of the people in security started in a very different era. And I, my first security job was in the year 2000. And my, my kind of security as a hobby was in the late 90s. So, so think about it. My quote unquote formative years were in a very different environment compared to today. So I've seen a lot of people who's been doing security for 10 years, 20 years, I don't know, maybe, maybe half a century for a few people. They, they give advice and the advice is kind of, about cloning themselves. And I'm not entirely sure that reliving anybody's career over the course of 20 years is the best approach. So I'm nervous to give this advice because I know that a lot of people give advice and they tell their experience and they say, see, I ended up great, do what I did. I'm not sure that's good advice. I would, for example, highlight the need to learn technology, but today's technology, you don't want to start, well, you probably do want to know Linux. Funny enough, my first exposure to security was in Linux. And guess what's really important to security today, say for cloud security, Linux. So there are a few common threads, yes, but many other things are just different. For example, studying networking, and there was a big uh, bit of a discussion slash fight on Twitter as whether you need to know networking to be a good security professional. My, my 
gut feel is the answer is yes. And I don't think it's gatekeeping. I think it's kind of, well, to be a physicist, you need to know math. It's not gatekeeping. It's kind of a foundational brick or one of the foundational layers. So there are certain elements like Linux, foundation of modern cloud infrastructure, containers, networking. They're all useful things to pursue, study, and of course, experiment with. One bit of advice that everybody gives is that you have to you know, play with stuff in the lab. And I think that's kind of still very solid, robust, good advice, whether you're starting in the 90s or in 2030s. What you have in the lab would, of course, be different, actually, except for Linux. Perhaps Linux would still be in the 1990s lab and the 2020s lab, but you would be experimenting with things. Now, this is one angle. There would be some technical background. In the early days, a lot of good security people came from being system admins. Today, probably a lot of good security people came from studying security in college. That wasn't an option in the 90s. So mixing the technical with non-technical is another pillar of advice that I would pursue because I've met people who study technology and they have absolutely no appreciation for human side of a threat. But I've also met people who study the, you know, the GRC, the governance, high level policy, humans, but they don't understand the tech. Frankly, both types are, well, not ideal as security professionals. So you would have some kind of balancing act in studying tech, modern tech, you know, future emerging tech, whatever, and kind of risks to business, human side, and how you balance it, I have no idea. I have no idea how I balanced it, but you will have some kind of balancing act. You cannot just be about, I know how to hack Kubernetes, but you also can't be, I've studied FAIR and the risk assessment methodologies. To be, to me, you, you will have to live in both worlds. You live in the tech world and you live in the risk world. Anton, you have had a very storied career in security and it is still going strong. I think that already listening to this podcast episode, our listeners can tell a little bit, are learning a little bit about the way that you think. And many of your roles have centered on consultative, thought, leadershipy, forward-thinking outlook. When you think about your career, what are some of the favorite predictions that you've had and then naturally, my follow-up question will be, do you have any current predictions for what you think may lie ahead for us in the security industry? I'm going to start from a very quick rant on this, connected to this. One thing I want to basically caution people against doing is predicting threats. And I hate it when people ask each other, well, myself and others questions about, hey, can you predict what threats would matter? Because the reason why I hate predicting threats and I sort of don't try not to go into that threat prediction business is because ultimately for a lot of companies, the threats they would face in 2022 would be the threats they faced in 1998. Like a lot of threat landscape is kind of the same because if you never really improved security behind beyond the level of 1998, why would a threat actor do anything different? If you can be attacked with the default password circa probably not 1998, probably more like 1988 style attack. Why change? You know, a password used to be in a telnet server, look it up, but now this password is in the cloud service or an API but it's still the same attack. So for many threats, the challenge isn't predicting threats. The challenge is why are you so negligent to a threats from five, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago? So leaving threat predictions aside, one thing that I've mentioned a few times is I'm gonna go in this direction and then hit my favorite single prediction piece. So one thing I've been using a lot in predicting the future is, is not, not what people would call a talent shortage or whatever, but it's really the fact that the amount of stuff 
we have to secure does grow faster than we can grow people who know how to secure it. And it may be cloud, it may be IoT, it may be just people doing more digital things at companies. But just as many, many years ago, people obsessed about, you know, system admin to server ratio. Right now, we can think of some form of assets to secure and the security professional ratio. And to me, this is kind of a runaway train because we have much faster growth in what we need to secure compared to growth in people who know what to do securing stuff. And Yes, some of you will self-serving motives would say, yeah, the answer is automation. But right now it's not about the answer. Right now it's kind of about acknowledging the fact that stuff to secure grows faster than people. And that's a prediction of sorts that I don't think it's changing. I think that these are still going to be tricky and still going to be very hard to deal with. Now, so the prediction is that you have to change. We have to change what we are doing. And of course, at Google, we do have a lot of answers around this area, like how we use automation and discovered in my own podcast and in other places. But that's not the point. The point is that it's still a runaway train. So a specific prediction piece uh, I wanted to highlight. There's one particular piece of writing that I've written back in 2009. The blog post is dated January 1st, 2010. So it's like 12 years ago at this point. It's kind of my admittedly somewhat pathetic attempt to predict security 10 years into the future. So I was writing this piece in 2010 and I was trying to predict how things would look like in 2020. And to do a bit of a spoiler, uh, in January 2020, I kind of checked my predictions and I said, hey, was I really off? But the interesting bit about this piece is not because I was right, I was wrong, it was kind of a mixed bag. But the main gist of it is that I felt like in 10 years, security would affect the real world, the physical world a lot more. So if you look at 2010, you'd think about people hacking, you know, websites and stealing card numbers and, you know, PCI DSS this and PCI DSS that. But a lot of this was kind of about digital and nobody really seriously thought about people dying. Well, maybe in 2010, they started thinking about it. But ultimately, the security effect in the physical world was not really a big deal in 2000. Now, my prediction was that it would change. And in all honesty, I was mostly wrong in this regard, but I feel like I wasn't wrong, wrong. I feel like I was early. So it's almost like I probably should have written a piece predicting security 10 years in the future again in 2020 for 2030. And I would have predicted some of the same things because ultimately today we don't just work in digital security or computer security. We kind of work in, well, if you hate cyber, cover your ears, cybersecurity to cover not just digital systems and information processing, but covering control systems, covering things that ultimately affect the physical world. And to me, that's still my main, maybe not my main scare, but my main suspicion is that security would change that. Right now, we talk about securing elections. We talk about securing democracy. We could talk about securing connected cars. And so things happen in this area, but I just, I'm just afraid that they would be scarier. And uh, those of my friends and colleagues who deal with OT security or control systems, I have no idea how they sleep at night. Whenever I talk to them at a conference, I have no idea how I sleep at night. So I keep thinking that digital security would barge in into the physical world even more in 10 years. You know, I think that to predict the future accurately is a hard thing to do. I think that to predict the future accurately and with a correct time scale is even harder. And so I have to say that on one hand, I'm intrigued about how spot on your predictions are. I'm also sort of simultaneously 
terrified mm-hmm. and also relieved uh, that it is not <laughs> so bad so soon, which frankly would not surprise me either. Anton, there are so many topics that I would like to discuss with you. Unfortunately, time is finite. So I'll pick one, which is threat detection. There may be a lot of anxiety around the threats that we don't know about yet, but I'm going to make a statement and I wonder if you'll agree with me or if you'll disagree. It is usually the low risk, very well-known threats that can cause a lot of damage. What do you think? I think that your question has a bit of a logical flaw because if they're low risk, and if you subscribe to a traditional thinking of risk as you know chance of a loss and the amount of loss, then low risk by definition cannot cause a lot of damage. So if it's low risk, by definition, it's not a lot of damage. But I think what you're trying to say is that these are more mundane threats. It's not the esoteric that gets you, but more basic. It's not the fancy container escape, but it's more, uh, you know, the forgotten password that gets you. Is this close to what you had in mind? Because to me, the low risk, low risk issue is by definition low risk. You should not pay attention to it. I think but, that's a really good point, Anton. Uh, more like low complexity, <laughs> yeah. well-known threat. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing. I think if I were clever, I might say to you that I did it on purpose as a trick question and that you discovered my trick. But in fact, I think that your interpretation uh, is a very good one. And that is, and that is in fact the case. You know, today we happen to be recording this podcast in August in 2020. It may be a little bit of time before it's released to the public. And today I happen to watch an interview of Mudge, who was recently in a security role at Twitter, you know, and of course, the news does not write about Mudge without also showing a picture of Mudge in 1998 at his Senate testimonial. And while his hairstyle is different, there are many things, unfortunately, that are the same with regards to the types of cybersecurity vulnerabilities that get exploited today as 20 years ago, which is sort of fascinating and infuriating at the same time. Yes, I think that a lot of organizations, a lot of kind of real damage, a lot of things that are, they go boom in the night, they, they happen over things that we sort of know about. Like back in the Gartner days, uh, a lot of analysts, a lot of my colleagues like to quote the statistic that 99% of damage, or I don't recall how exactly it was phrased, but basically 99% of badness happens from known vulnerabilities. Now, it's a cool thing to say to shock your audience who maybe assume something different, but ultimately it's also kind of a bad thing to say because that means that organizations haven't dealt with the stuff that they've known about, right? And of course, uh, a large enterprise would have a lot of stuff they know about they can't fix, right? So as a funny aside, much testimony and much uh, kind of incident understanding, doing security at scale is really hard. And doing, keeping a large complex environment secure is really hard. And moreover, if your company has like layer cake of IT from like mainframes to containers, 1970s tech, 1980s tech, 1990s tech, 2000s tech, all layered together, connected in some way, I have no idea how to keep it secure. So in that sense, I think that known low-risk issues cause damage, but they're also really hard to eliminate at scale. Again, uh, one of my areas of coverage at Gartner was vulnerability management. And I realized very quickly that the only 
problem worth solving in VM is prioritization. How do you risk prioritize things to fix? Patching at scale, sure, that's important, but ultimately you can never win at that game. You can never fix everything. Like your IT and your business just won't work. So you are prioritizing. So in that sense, you can always find some quote unquote low risk issue and say, yo, you didn't fix this one. But like if you scan your environment and you have you know, 7 million findings, of course you won't fix all 7 million. So again, with this rambling answer, I think that I'm trying to get to a point that sometimes the so-called low complexity stuff is actually really complex at scale. Yeah, well said. I began my cybersecurity work at eBay and had a perspective hmm. during that experience of how truly complicated it can be even to solve a low complexity problem if there are so many instances of that problem, if there is so much legacy software, if the number of assets to secure is exploding, and if you do not have or if it's not even possible to get a clear picture of ownership of these assets. Of course, this remains for me one of the reasons why this field is endlessly interesting. Anton, I expect that our listeners would love to hear more from you. You host the Cloud Security Podcast with Timothy Peacock. And I'm curious, what kickstarted your collaboration and what is your favorite part of working on your podcast? I really wanted to do a podcast to have kind of a more informal, less bureaucratic channel for expression, that discussion form about cloud security that isn't very much, isn't under strict, you know, rules, what you can say, because like podcasts are a lot more fluid and a lot more agile than say, you know, longer form writing or even blogs. But I've also was kind of deathly afraid of doing a podcast alone. I felt like the banter in the beginning or interviewing people together is kind of a critical part. So it's almost like I had a bit of a casting call. I don't know, maybe that's not the right term. So I really needed a co-founder and I found a perfect, perfect person when I found Tim at, at Google. Tim is also uh, notable for one particular thing. And it's really, uh, it kind of blew my mind a little bit. Tim is the second generation security professional. Think that about it. That is so cool. That is super cool. I hope That's one day amazing. that so my, my daughter will be second generation, but that that might be not for another 10 years. That's pretty cool. Uh, yes, exactly. But to me, the, to continue on your on your point about the podcast, that's the origin story, at least part of the origin story. And uh, I think the favorite part is that sometimes we highlight things that are about how Google does something. Some of the more popular episodes are connected to something that Google does that's just so far, so much better than what people expect that it's kind of almost like mind blowing. It's like seeing a glimpse of a future. And of course, that future is not always portable. Like you can't just say, oh yeah, I'm going to do the same. But revealing some of the quote unquote Google secrets, it's not really secrets, about how we do things and trying to make it actionable to others is really fun. And also, now that I work for Office of the CISO, highlighting some of the thinking behind who I consider to be the best minds in security kind of on the planet, people like Phil Venables, for example, I, I feel like sharing their wisdom on, in our venue is, is really awesome. So to me, this is great. Phenomenal. Well, Anton, thank you so much for spending this time with me today, for sharing with us about your story and for the impact of your work. 
I'm so glad to know you. I'm so glad that you're working at Google, which makes stuff that I use like every minute of every day. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Hopefully we can motivate people to go pursue the career we're pursuing for a good number of years. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen test as a service company. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec.